Thank you for joining us in the King Thing Marketing Studio, where in series one, we're exploring the unique stories behind Tasmanians and their successful businesses. Why are you laughing? What have I said? <laughs> I'm just kidding. of our series is all about the stories behind Tasmanian businesses, the people who make them tick and inspiring other businesses. I'm Sarah Wells and I'm Claire Murphett and we're both marketing consultants at King Thing Marketing. Today we're chatting with Polly McGee about her amazing self, the good hustle and Buddhist yogi life. Polly is also the face behind Dr Digital who writes and speaks about marketing as part of State Growth's Digital Ready program. It's an honour to have her in the King Thing podcast studio with us because we know how busy you are promoting your new book. Um, we're going to kick things off um, to get started and just ask you a couple of questions and answer with the first thing that comes to your head. Um, yeah, welcome to the King Thing Studio. Thanks, gals. I'm so super excited to be here. I love this. I love podcasting. It's my favourite thing. So I'm very happy to be at the very early part of your podcast too. What a privilege. Awesome. So we're going to kick things off. Favourite book? It can't be yours. Well, I'm very in the moment with the things I love to read. And at the moment, I'm absolutely loving the pants off Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness. It's, I think it's sort of where I'm at right now. I'm about to embark on a whole lot of new projects. And she really talks about sometimes that need to just, as a leader, stand alone and to not look for the crowds of people around you, which can feel terrifying. And um, I, just, I just love her. I love her. Yeah, awesome. Favourite vegan treat? Oh, jeez. You know, I have to say, I'm super lowbrow on this one. I've been obsessively loving pies and I've been eating a lot of pies and mash and gravy. It's like my lazy Sunday night go-to dinner, pie night. So vegan pies from Woolies out of a box. <laughs> Love it. Haven't heard of those ones. I'll have to give them a try. Most annoying habit. Oh, I'm really messy. I'm, I'm like I'm like a teenage boy's bedroom sort of messy so it, <laughs> I often open the door to my study which doubles as my wardrobe and I look there and I go yeah you haven't really changed since you were 12. <laughs> then I close it and go oh, look at my perfect house. <laughs> um, guilty pleasure. Uh, French champagne and napping. It's a double, it's a double header not That's always connected. <laughs> Favourite Instagram account? But the Instagram account I think that gives me the most love and happiness and meaning is Elizabeth Gilbert. It's Elizabeth underscore Gilbert underscore writer. Now, she she's just a woman who speaks from the heart. And every time I read one of her posts, it uplifts me and it touches me. She's not selling anything. She's just speaking her truth. And there's something so brave and, and amazing about that. So I just love her. Love you, Liz. Pew, pew. Um, what's your motivational song? Again, like I, I love so many different things at once, but I think if, I have to say if I want to get up and really kind of G myself up for something big, it'd have to be Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. And I just like do the full like massive hair and teeth in my mind and the rocket ship and I'm like, I'm that person. That's amazing. That's awesome. I think Rob has a you know, bit of a crush on Queen Absolutely. still. So. Oh, Absolutely. You can never let go of that My career, as anyone who's read The Good Hustle will know, is like really The Good Hustle was written because of my crazy life and career. And I think that what really probably defined my career the most was having a sense I needed to know who I was and what I was doing and I didn't. And so I embarked on this crazy journey of like just doing everything, thinking that I would find the thing that would give me meaning and, and help me work out who I was. So what that led to was, you know, 
definitely a period of unhappiness but what it ultimately has led to in hindsight was that I got this wild experience of stuff and I said yes to things that I had no experience in that were wildly out of my skill sets just because I thought well this could be the one it's like searching for my perfect man but I was searching for my perfect job so what really defined my career I think was a lot of curiosity um a lot of not without even thinking about things saying yes and then having to work stuff out which inadvertently helped me grow a really quite kind of a growth mindset perspective because I knew I didn't need to know how I could just learn and I'd proven that to myself over and over and over and I guess the most defining part of my career is the moment where I realized that it wasn't one on my was on my business card that actually made me who I was it was who I was that made me who I was and I stopped and surrendered and stopped looking 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 all the time and just went okay well let's just do the one thing that I'm doing well and be present to it and the people I'm in service to and that was really where the journey properly began amazing that's um, so now tell us what's the weirdest job you've ever had. Well, I'd, I'd say probably for most, most people would say the weirdest job I ever had was as a classifier for adult films. Mm-hmm. And that certainly is a great conversation starter yeah, and, and stopper in some situations. Yeah. <laughs> I've certainly watched more porn than most men I know. And, uh, <laughs> but again, like that was one of those jobs that I just was like, this sounds like it's going to be fun. And didn't really, hadn't really thought it through. It was like I'd finished a comms degree. I was a good writer. And the job was basically reviewing and classifying the films and then writing marketing copy for them. So you can imagine how fun that is. There's a lot of adjectives and euphemisms out there. But again, that really, that led me to understand a lot of things about how politics works in Australia. And I ended up being a lobbyist for the organisation I worked for to change legislation in Australia about how we classified what adults could consensually watch which was an amazing and fascinating process. And again, I never would have thought I'd be there. And from there, it allowed me to start working in policy in some much bigger, serious jobs because I kind of got those machinations. But it was pretty nuts, it's fair to say. How long were you in that job for? I was in the classifying role for a year and then I was seconded to work in the lobbying role for government for a year. But in that time, I did things. Aside from, you know, classifying hundreds of hours of adult video, I escorted like America's top porn stars around Australia and, you know, chaperoned them at photo sessions travel like I did some really crazy sort of stuff so there, it was a laugh a minute and you know yeah. much no matter what you think about the adult sector and the reality is that that bodies and sort of like the humanness of sex is funny and there was yeah. there was a lot of humor I probably laughed more in that job than any job I've ever laughed in and it was just everyone who worked there was just like really fun and really sort of a little bit crazy so it was yeah. great oh, that's so good <laughs> Um, so now, um, obviously there's a bunch of small businesses in Tassie. Um, do you think small business can thrive in Tasmania? Yeah, I think Tasmania is the small business state. And if you look at the statistics still, I think I've been working with small business here for about a decade. When I came, the statistics were about 98% of businesses are small to micro businesses. So one to two people. And that really hasn't changed. What's awesome about Tasmania is it has, it's an island. So it's very, it's a really good place to try out your brand and to try out stuff. It's relatively low cost to set up a business here. So you can come here and you can have this beautiful lifestyle. You can, you've got enough people if for a small business to really, sort of, if you know your market, to make it work. And it's just, it's a really good place to start. It's the, the connections between people here are very short. So if you want to get something done, you just have to ask one or two people and you've suddenly met that one person you need it to meet. So I just think it is a really great place for that. Now, it has its challenges because it's, it's quite hard to scale here because of the population and the tyranny of distance. Mm-hmm. But that's all changing. So, yeah, I think it's a brilliant place for small business. Yeah, yeah we're super lucky for sure. Um, so now let's have a little bit of a chat about um, Dr. Digital. 
Um, why do you think the digital ready program is so important to businesses and I guess in particular small businesses in Tassie? Look, I, I cannot speak highly enough about the, the digital ready program and not in any thing in not in any way because I have a part in it, but I've worked in Commonwealth government and in state government in Australia in innovation and I've seen a lot of programs in that time. And the thing that sets digital ready apart is that it really is written in real time for the people. It's not a piece of static government policy that's come out. It's been from the beginning it started a very dynamic, agile program that has responded to the needs of the sector as it's changed. So because the coaches are out there talking to people all the time, because the program organisers are out there engaging, they, they ask, what do you need? And people tell them, they're like, okay, well, that's going in the next session. So what we've done is respond to things that are changing. And because a large part of what I've done, I started in the coach, I started from the very beginning with the pilot of that program. So I've been involved since the start and I started coaching. And then when I got busier, I just ended up writing all the content in the back end and that's how Dr. Digital came to life. But that's been very much about what am I seeing out there in the world? What am I seeing businesses needing to know? And what can we future cast? Like what am I seeing in the big tech world that we can start bringing back into small business? So that's really how we've designed it. And it's, it's designed to be inclusive. We get that people often in small business are super busy and they don't have the language. They don't want to be blinded with all this tech jargon. So it's kind of like, how do we make this super simple and accessible and actionable for your business? And I think that's what really makes it stand alone. And I would put it against any program in Australia. I'm so proud of it. Yeah, I mean, I've nearly been a digital ready coach for two years now and it is so rewarding because... Um, businesses walk out and they feel so much more empowered to go yeah. off and do things themselves which is yeah really important part of the program so and no one yeah. likes to feel dumb and I think no, for a lot of us when we yeah. don't know things we don't tend to ask because there's a sense that we should have this domain mastery over everything I remember in the very early days sitting with people and literally putting my hand on their hand moving a mouse to show them how to do things and it was this very basic world and from there, within a couple of weeks, they'd be emailing me and going, oh my God, I just wrote my first blog or I just published my first Instagram post and people responded and I just made a sale and it was it was really uplifting and exciting and so I think the, the basic premise is that there are no dumb questions and that we all, as we all grow together and learn together, the peer-to-peer -to -peer education that then happens amongst small business people is as valuable as the program. Well, again, this is a classic story of me. I was in India just traveling. I had no aspiration to be a writer. I never have had an aspiration to sort of, to kind of go out there and do it. It was something that as a child I wanted to do, but I never thought I'd be a writer. So I'm in a park with a woman who I met who was staying in the Airbnb that we were at, who actually, well, sorry, the woman that owned the Airbnb. And she fed stray dogs. And she's like, do you want to come and like feed some stray dogs? And I'm like, well, I do love dogs. So I was in a park feeding puppies with her and hanging out. And I was looking across like, you know, we're in the middle of Delhi massive scene of like greenery all these cute stray puppies all these monkeys running around and i just thought isn't it interesting how people really really love the monkeys because of hanuman and they really revere them and they feed them and they look after them but the dogs just have no status at all and i was thinking you know i wanted to write a story with a hero dog that really told that story of what what it's like when you are in a marginality and how do you shift that and what are some of the elements and I got this incredibly strong sort of like a tap on the shoulder going you've got to write a book about this and I was like oh no that's not who I am but it was absolutely overwhelming and I came back to Australia and it was just in my mind I was like I don't know how to write a novel where would I even start and then out of the blue someone sent me 
an email going, oh, there's a career writing master's at Utah's. You should apply for that. And I was like, what? No. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just contact the woman because I knew her that was running it. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, you just maybe haven't written. We know you work. You really, you know, you'll be able to do this. So I thought, well, I'll just try it because it'll be interesting to learn and I'll be able to push the idea through. And I just, it really came from there that it was a story that had to be told. And every time I sort of stopped or I was like, I don't know about this, I'd have that same overwhelming tap on the shoulder going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And so I just kept going and really what, ended up doing was kind of bringing together a lot of my interests which were in writing a story about women and writing a story about intergenerational power for women and what it's like to sort of push up against the patriarchy and push up against the machine and how do you change that but wrote it like a Bollywood film because you know I just love the whole crazy romance of that so that's where Dogs of India came from and I really tried to bring together in my early work this idea of what is it to sort of to have a mission to be spiritual to try and empower people and to tell that in a way that isn't heavy handed and like, here's a message. It's like, the only thing that I needed people to do was to read that story and love it and feel yeah. connected to the animals and connected to the people and feel the sights and smells and sounds of India. So it was a mission to sort of go, how do I have a very light touch with my messaging, but a very strong narrative that's just compelling. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Is that um, your favorite place that you've visited? I love India. It's certainly one of them. And it's, uh, it's somewhere that I just, there's a real, there's a real, I think the chaos really suits me. I'm, you know, I'm, quite, I'm chaotic in many ways in terms of, I love that everything's agile there. Everything can change in a moment. And you have, you have the full extreme of this richness of life. But there's also this really beautiful, deep, spiritual and philosophical part of India, which I connect to very strongly. So I, I do absolutely love it. And it's been way too long since I've been there. But I think everywhere I go, it's like, you're the best. This is the best place. You know, I'm always like, oh, my God, why well, haven't been here before? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so how did your latest book, The Good Hustle, come to life? Well, by that, but I mean, again, this is another one of those things. I actually thought if I was ever going to write, I'd write nonfiction because I wrote, I write a lot, but I don't write in books. I write in blogs and I write in papers and things like that. So it was kind of like... I wanted to find a way to put together all the, the work that I do and the, particularly the things I tell people over and over and over when I'm doing business coaching and strategy that I felt like there needed to be kind of like, like, let's just get this all together. But then, of course, it was another one of these crazy situations where I was in Byron. I was doing a, a yoga retreat where I was learning to be a yoga teacher. So I was immersed for two months. So it just had gone, oh, yeah, what will I do? I'll go to India. Then went, oh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Like I had this real switched in the middle of having a whole plan about going overseas and decided to go and do this yoga training in an ashram that's up in northern New South Wales. So I was doing some some yogic philosophy as part of my study in that course and I suddenly had this overwhelming realisation that the path to enlightenment, because we were reading all about the yoga sutras and all of the yogic philosophy, had this real synergy with the path of being a, an entrepreneur and a startup. And there's a very there's a set of stages you go through taking a business into the market, which is what I've been working in for so long. And I suddenly like, you know, entrepreneurs have this experience and enlightenment has this experience. And so what if I was to bring those two things together and say, okay, so what if businesses were actually about not only enlightening ourselves, but enlightening others? How would we do that where we were connecting to people all the time? And how do we create these businesses that have meaning, that give us joy, that are bigger than we are, but make them sustainable and make the people that are running them happy and free and able to run them properly? And, you know, so again, that was kind of like this whole rush of thoughts came into my head and I came back and I talked to my publisher and I said look I've had this thought for a book and they're like oh is it fiction and I was like oh no it's not <laughs> and so they kind of had a belief in what I wanted to do and I'd been talking to them for a while about wanting to do a non-fiction piece for women in business and so the good hustle just rolled out of that and again it's a very similar experience 
I really wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm the worst writer ever because when people write as festivals and stuff, say, so, oh, how's your writing process? I'm like, oh, I just, you know, just open my computer and start smashing work, my big man hands, and then I finish. And it's like, I don't really think about it. They're like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, really, it's really for me, I just let it come out. The stories aren't mine. The, the stories are in there. And it's like when they have to be told, it just like, it's like boom. And I just sit there and I go. And so with that, I knew I wanted to tell this story. And it really just came out. And it, again, it was able to have a structure because the Yoga Sutras have a structure. So I really said, okay, well, what does the Lean Startup look like, which is a book by Eric Rees, which we all in the entrepreneurship world use. What if I map the Lean Startup principles and methodologies against the path to enlightenment that you'd follow as a yogi if you were? Yeah. But how do we do that as contemporary people? And so the structure of the book just naturally fell out of that. Yeah, so it wasn't like you always had this burning desire to be a writer. It was more like, I've done these amazing things or experienced these things and I really want to tell these stories, so I'm just going to do it. Well, it's funny because I, I was doing a thing for the Happiness Conference a few months ago and I sort of did a, I had to talk about the story of becoming a writer. and. When I really thought about it, I mean, my mum just kind of randomly went, oh, I was going through your stuff the other day and I found that book you wrote when you were three. And I was like, what? And then I remember that, like, I'd written this book that mum had, like, hand sort of sewn and, and illustrated and stuff for me. She'd written it down and it's like, it's, it's a crazy book. In fact, it's very much like my life now. It basically just talks about a garden full of flowers that eat comfort foods. I'm like, oh, that's me. That's so good. <laughs> She's like, even from an early age, you had that comfort food thing. <laughs> So then I kind of really thought about it and I thought that when I was very young I had had a desire to be a writer and I'm like sort of pre-10 I'd had a desire to be a writer but then I'd crushed that out of me because what how was I going to be a writer I didn't have that faith and it was a really interesting thing to go back and think about that thought process of how we crush our creativity and how we listen to our elders and our teachers and our people in the community who want the best for us, but often the best for us isn't what our dharma's calling us to do or what our really true nature of self is calling us to do. So I would say, look, oh, I wasn't ever going to be a writer, but I think what really happened was that I was always going to be a writer, but I just, yeah. it took me a really long time to wake up. Yeah, 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 that's so cool. Um, so I'm partway through your book at the minute. So you wrote that any successful entrepreneur needs to be able to ask for help at some point. Um, is there a point that you've had to ask for help that's really memorable for you? Yeah, there is. A, and it actually relates to Dogs in India. And when I'd, I'd written the, the manuscript for it and it was kind of like it had been parked in the bottom drawer because I didn't know what to do with it when I finished it. And I was really busy. I think I was working for the ABC then. And I was in the tea room with a woman called Rush McCann who had come out of publishing way back in the day, way before she'd ever become a radio person. And I said to her, oh, Rush, look, I just don't know what to do next. Like, you know, who do you know? Can you help me? And I just, it was like a really, it's, it's a moment of surrender where you have to sort of just be open. to someone going, actually, no, no. But you know that there's always another door. And she said, oh, I've got a friend. She was working for a massive publishing company and she's just started a publishing startup that's really disruptive. She's looking for authors. Why don't I hook you up together? So, of course, she hooked me up with her. It was love at first sight. And she published Dogs of India and then went back and works now in um, Murdoch and so published The Good Hustle through Murdoch. Again, just she was a real champion of mine in my work, but it was really, and that, I guess that really made me ask questions a lot now. So I ask for help all the time, because the thing is people will say no if they don't want to help you, but the majority of times people do want to help. And often, again, I'm very intuitive. I'm really guided by sort of like whatever's going on in my gut and in my head. And often I'll just be compelled to say to, to ask someone for something. I don't even know why. And I'm like, really? And I don't know that person, but you know, you're at a conference or, you're in a meeting and you just got someone say, oh, hi, you know, and then before yeah. you know it, they're exactly the right person you're meant to meet. So I'm really, I really learned to trust my inner compass and just to ask a lot of people and yeah. also to offer help where I can. And that's the sort of reciprocal that like, 
as much as you can lift others, you must lift others as much as, as they'll help you or they'll help you. And it's also good to say no when it's, if you're not right for someone, but yeah. to be able to then give them other opportunities or other things. And quite often now I will say no because I'm just not the right person to help, but I don't want that person to stop because I've said no. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I'm sure by now the listeners would love to know where they can get you at their hands on your books. So where can we buy them? Uh, on the interwebs. <laughs> so you can get them through Amazon, through any lots of local bookstores have them as well. So they're available sort of all around Australia. Um, in Tassie, they're everywhere. So just any of the major bookstores have it. And also on Audible. And I have to say, much as I love the the hardback, that the Audible experience was really magical. There's something magical about authors reading to you and the experience of recording it was quite profound and I had such a lovely time and there were moments when I was reading the book where classically I was reading and I was going, oh, this is really good. I don't remember writing this. This is great. And then I'd have these sort of like, you know, the hairs in the back of my neck would stand up and I'd be like in my brain going, this is really important. Really slow your mind down and think about what you're saying here because this is a bit where someone's going to connect and you need to be the voice that, that awakens their heart. So it was a really, like, I felt very emotional. Yeah. Got to the last page, sort of barely got through the last sentence, kind of, <laughs> 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 the end. So I really, and so I say to people, oh, you know, I like the idea of just sort of being out in a run with you or being in the bathroom yeah. with you or like snuggling up in bed with a hot chocolate and, you know, just being in your ears. So the audible version is really lovely too yeah. yeah so i'm really really enjoying your book and i've got the audible version and you've got such a soothing voice like it's really <laughs> relaxing like i love putting my earphones on and listening to a bit of polly in the afternoon <laughs> but i feel like i'm kind of just i've got my arm around someone saying, okay let's just have a little chat so this is what's gonna happen next yeah. and that's that you know that was a sentiment like i yeah. wanted the intention i brought to that recording was very much about I just want people to feel that they're held and that they're heard and that they can do this and that they've got someone in the corner. Yeah, that's amazing. Can I ask you about your tattoos? Yeah. Cool. In your book, you also say tattooed women will never be allowed. Can you explain that phrase for me a little bit? I think that's probably part of a bigger quote when I was yeah. talking about when, so I've been getting tattoos for a long time. But again, if I, when I tell the story about who I was when I was little and there's a lot of the elements of who I am today were really present for me when I was a child. So one of the things when I was very young, I really wanted to have tattoos and so I was, I was saying in a presentation I did recently, like what I wanted when I was a child, I wanted to be a prostitute or I wanted to be in prison because I knew that women who were in, in prison or who were prostitutes, were, they could have tattoos and they were allowed to go out at night and they had really epic hair and makeup. And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to get tattoos, I probably need to do that. So I packed my bag at night and I'd lie in bed planning my escape to the cross and because I grew up in Sydney and be able to like just be one of those tattooed That's women. So awesome. now, like, and it's it sounds really ridiculous when you talk about it now because it's like I, I was like five or something. And, yeah. But that sense of I knew as a child I had to have tattoos. Now I grew up in a very, very classic conservative North Shore family and there was no one I knew who had a tattoo. My parents didn't have tattoos, their friends didn't have tattoos. In fact, they were seen as the most, the marker of, of d being deeply common. And mum would say things like, oh no, that's so common, you can't have that. You can't have that hair, you can't have that. But tattoos were like the worst thing in the world. Probably only worse would be being a prostitute. So, you know, it was, I grew up in this world where like everything I thought was, that, that I was drawn to was just not what I saw in front of me. Yeah. So 
there was that ingrained narrative for me that sort of good girls, nice girls, educated girls, successful girls, they weren't girls that had tattoos. And the girls that had tattoos were common and, you know, prostitutes and sailors probably and in jail. But I didn't want to be any of those things, but I just wanted to have tattoos. So at the time when I started getting them, there weren't many women around that had visible tattoos and that had like conscious visible tattoos. Like I consciously decided at some point when I first started getting work on my arms that I would become this ambassador for successful women who were tattooed and that it wasn't going to be a barrier and it would be a thing that I would go out and rather than having people like my mother make an assumption that that I was someone who was nasty or common that people that talk to me and they'd be like oh tattooed people are really friendly and nice and I would be that person so I kind of make myself the ambassador for women with tattoos in my mind that's amazing but it's great now and like I I love more than anything now and I mean pretty much any city of Australia or internationally, you see women everywhere, super successful, heavily tattooed, beautiful yeah, artwork. Yeah. And the scenes change, you know, the artists have changed, the whole world has changed. So I feel, you know, it's just, it's such a beautiful and halcyon time. But, but back in the early days, like I was the only one I knew, I was the only person in any landscape I lived in. And keep in mind, like I worked in Canberra in the public sector as an executive, and I was the only woman that had tattoos in that whole department I was in. And it was just, it was freak show territory. Yeah. Um, so that leads into my next question. So in your early days, or even recently, have you been treated differently because of your tattoos? Look, probably by my mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only, in, only in the home. <laughs> no. And she's like, she, once she got over the initial shock and, and realised that it was not going to stop happening, I have to say that, you know, I've now I just do this sneaky thing where she's, I made her an Instagram account and I'm the only person that she follows. So whenever I'm getting new work, I just take photos of it. And like, so I know that she's seen it first and she's sort of, she's kind of, you know, be brief. But no, look, I have to say I have never been treated differently. And I think part of that is who I am and the way I work in the world. But I also think that that, that that sort of that's enough in lots of ways too. Like if you own it, like I own my work, I own that I'm tattooed and that I don't, I'm not like people expect me to be. And they don't necessarily expect someone who looks a bit rock and roll to be in business or to be in yeah. the kind of worlds I've worked in. And so it kind of also opens up a conversation. But lots of people now say to me in a way that they think is a compliment, which is I find quite funny, oh look, we don't even see them anymore. It's like, well, you know, I, it's like, I don't want you to tell me that, that, you know, you don't see the color of my skin or like any marginality. It's like, I want you to recognize that, that diversity and difference makes us all really rich. But I know what they mean. And it's kind of cute. It's usually men who go, oh, we don't even see them. You know, you're just Polly. <laughs> That's awesome. No, thanks for sharing that. So who are some of the people that inspire you and why? There's a lot of people that really inspire me and, and they're, they're, they're from all different places and sort of all the time. And I have to say my mum is someone who does really inspire me. She was the first person I saw being an entrepreneur and the first person I saw really being a leader in quite difficult family circumstances. My dad died when I was quite young and mum and he had a business and she just had to take it over. And, you know, in the 80s, women just weren't running businesses and they weren't doing branding and they weren't doing marketing. And she just, I credit her as being one of the first people I ever saw do a full branding campaign. She had an amazing eye for, for visuals and for the product and the market. And so I probably learnt a lot organically from her. So I still look to her for sort of just seeing what bravery and courage can look like in business. Um, I've had some very good bosses over the years who have really mentored me and who have really seen me and believed in me and, and every sort of major turn I've taken in my career, someone's put their hand out and helped me there. And so I'm really grateful to, to those women particularly and they're mainly women who have done that. Um, and I guess in the world, 
people like Brene Brown and Liz Gilbert, they really inspire me. I think women who are sort of speaking their truth and living with courage, I really, I really admire that. I don't know, I just, I feel I get inspired in little morsels by many people all the time. And it's often not big celebrity people, it's really just people that you see making a difference. And it, just being themselves, I think that's the greatest thing that we can be inspired by, someone who's prepared to stand out there on their own, because they believe in something and not worry what other people think. And if we can, if we can all crack through that nut, we'll be much better off. Mm. Um, when you walked in, you seemed pretty inspired by a lady down south who was making felt hearts. Oh, can you tell us about yeah. that? Because yes, I, I love can. that story. So this, and this is what I mean. Like, I think you come across people all the time that just, and particularly, I think in this world we live in with social media, a lot of the people I've met recently have reached out to me. So Sarah De Jong is her name. She has a project called A Thousand Hearts. Now she reached out to me on social media because a friend of hers had recommended the book and she'd been reading it. And so she just put up a post saying, I'm reading your book and I really love it. And you know, lots of people contact you on Instagram and then they follow you. I don't always follow them back, but you know, I sometimes I do. And I just looked at it and I think, I thought oh, A Thousand Hearts, I wonder what that is. Cause that sounded cute to me. And, and it's not cute. It's way, way bigger than that. And so she is driven by this project of sewing felt pocket hearts. And a pocket heart is literally a felt stuffed heart that fits in your hand that you can stick in your pocket that reminds you that somebody loves you or that you're loved or that you're worthy. And she started a project just to sew a thousand of them and send them out to people who needed them. And that included like it's pretty much anyone. Now she's sewn over 8,000 and it's just getting bigger and bigger. And they've gone to hospitals and they've gone to people in palliative care and they've gone to parents of sick kids and they've gone to people with broken hearts and they've gone to people who don't even know where they came from. And I just feel like what inspires me about that is this idea that we, we can all do something that's really small that makes a difference. And I think a lot of us become paralysed by feeling we have to be so different in the world. We have to make these big things happen and we have to be extraordinary. And... We don't have to be extraordinary, we just have to make a difference. And the differences we make are in our close concentric circles. So when we do something like send out a heart to someone, that we don't know where that person is on that moment they receive it. And that thing could be a lifeline to them. And so when I see what sits behind the intention of that project, she's 100% in her dharma. She's working and driven to do this work. And because I say that, I'm driven to, to do anything I can to support her. And I feel like a lot of the people I meet in business are like that and they're coming to it from that perspective, which is why my belief is that the majority of people who are entrepreneurs and who are in business, they do it because they want to make a change. No one's doing it to buy their next Porsche. You know, they're doing it because they're driven by something much more than that. So beautiful. Yeah, I love that story. Um, so what's next for you now that the good hustle is in print? Do you have any plans of writing another book <laughs> or you're happy with the two that you've written? You're going to go back into the porn industry. <laughs> well, look, you know, there's always the demand. <laughs> I've always got that to fall back on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, actually, I can I can give you an announceable, which actually hasn't been said anyway. So I've just literally executed contracts on a business that I've become CEO and co-founder of, which is called SciGround. So yeah. it's an augmented reality business for educating children in place-based augmented reality. So think Pokemon Go, wow. but in shopping centers and in schools and in stuff where kids can learn as they run around. So that's oh come God. through. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's massive. Yeah. And so this is why I'm just all a bit white knuckly and like, oh my God. So I'm, I'm sort of in the calm before the storm and that the storm's about to start. But um, yeah, so I'm about to do the thing I guess I talk about all the time in terms of being a CEO and being and actually being an entrepreneur. 
I like to sort of say, oh, well, I'm a serial entrepreneur educator as it gets to serial entrepreneur, but I think it's time now. I'm ready to step into that unknown. And I think I've got enough skills and I've got enough growth mindset to be able to, to do it. And the story behind it was I went to Blue Chili, which is a, a accelerator for startup businesses in Sydney with an idea that I had that I put through a boot camp that was competitive. So I got to the boot camp. My idea didn't get into the final 15 and I was like, oh, that's great. I had such an amazing time. I learned so much and I felt so pumped when I finished. And then I got a call from a week or so later saying, look, just come back and tell us what you're going to do with your idea now. We really loved it. We really want you to come back and, and do some more stuff with us. And when they got there, they were like, actually, we've got this business and we're just wondering if you'd be interested in becoming the CEO. And I was like, what? So the guy that founded it really needed some business support and he wanted someone to be a co-founder and they thought because I had this background in education startups and in working with entrepreneurs that they thought that I'd be ready and I'm like I'm ready and I just I went and thought about it and I was like do I want to do my idea do I want to do this and I just thought this my life is about the process and it's about the journey and whether it's my idea or whether it's this idea the thing for me is about executing on the experience and I've got a hundred percent faith that this is a really fantastic idea but it's, um, it's really big and terrifying and I think that's the good place for me to be. So I did actually start writing a book the other day because I thought, oh, maybe I'll just smash that out before I really get into this, um, this business thing. But, um, but So I'll continue to do both. But I think there's a really important message about, you know, there's a saying that if you can't see it, you can't be it. So if I want to encourage female founders, which I do and I'm very passionate about female founders, and if I want to show what it's like to be in the public eye and to be me and to fail invariably and to get up and start again and to keep on doing it, I have to do that work and I have to be a leader in that right. So this was a just, it was like someone just tied a bow on it and gave it to me and I'm like, oh, so great. So that's my, that's my next move. So I think the next three to five wow. years are going to be spent yeah. executing a global business. That's yeah. amazing. I can't wait to see where that all heads. Yeah, yeah me really neither. exciting. Oh, you, you heard it here first. This is the yeah, King King, amazing. Breaking News King <laughs> King podcast. What, what, what better people to share it with? So I'm oh, kind of excited about it. You. No, that's awesome. That's really exciting. I didn't expect that. <laughs> we were only chatting about, you know, where we think things are heading in the digital world and this, that and the other the other day. And we were talking about virtual reality and augmented reality. And how we think it's obviously the next big yeah. thing, but we wonder what it's going to look like. So yeah, well, well and it is yeah. absolutely the next big thing, and there's a yeah. re- there's there's a few things that are really rocketing at the moment. That's yeah. one of them. Voice is another one. Internet yeah. of Things. I saw this really great article. It was like, what do you want to invest in in the next year? And it's like those things plus pets. And I'm like, oh, pets. Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't want to invest in pets? Yeah. So at the, at the heart of all of this tech, there's like pets. Yeah. But yeah, like I think it is exciting. And the other thing I really want to do with this aside from being a sort of boss lady female founder is also to remind people that you can be successful from anywhere and I think this is a uniquely Tasmanian story that mm. that Tasmania has to push its IP beyond its its barriers and we do that well in some sectors but we can be operating at a much higher frequency globally and we've got lots of smart people here we don't have to leave to go and get money like we used to we can get investors to come here and I think yeah. This is about saying, I want to be that company that was founded and is run out of here. And while I might want to go to San Francisco or go to Sydney or go to wherever, mm-hmm. I'm still going to have this as a base because this is where I want to live and work. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the main reasons why we um, sort of try to point this um, podcast in that direction because there are so many amazing stories of Tasmanian businesses. And, yeah, this is a way that we can share that with people. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's really exciting. Coming down. The water's cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really, the wine is really amazing. Cold, yeah. <laughs> um, so how long have you been Buddhist? And can you tell us what's so great about it? And 
what is a day in the life of a Buddhist and a yogi like? <laughs> um, look, I cannot, I have to say that I don't like, I probably wouldn't call myself a Buddhist in that, like it's a shorthand. So I do sort of say, oh, well, I'm Buddhist, but I'm also, I also use a lot of yogic philosophy. So Buddhism is much more for me, it's a practice and it's a way of being in the world than it is, I'm a Buddhist, which excludes everything else around it. I think a lot of the problem we have with religion and Buddhism probably walks a fine line between being a philosophy and a science and a religion, depending on who you speak to and who you practice with. But it's, for me, the tenets of Buddhism are the key principles I live my life by, along with the tenets of yoga philosophy. So it's easy to, like if someone had to, if I had to write in a form what my, what my spiritual preference was, I'd probably say Buddhism. But really, my, my, my spiritual preference is having faith and having a belief in kindness and compassion. And that, for me, is at the heart of Buddhism. So the, a day in the life of me in my world and this is my everyday practice is the first thing I do when I get up is I do 40 minutes to an hour of meditation and that involves doing some intention setting doing some prayer and some Buddhist mantras and that is a particular Buddhist thing but I also include some some Hindu and some Sanskrit mantras in there and I really spend time before I do anything else starting my day with that that just anchoring myself in my beliefs as I go throughout the day I continually hold in my head and in my heart am I right kind am I right words am I right thoughts and am I right body so what am I doing that is going to hurt someone else is everything that I'm doing something that is going to minimize the impact the harmful impact I have on all sentient beings that's really important to me and so that really informs the way I go about stuff and when I find myself looking at someone and having a critical thought or having a negative thought about myself or just all that chatter that we all do me included all the time and I kind of just have to pull myself up and go, is that who you are? Is that who you want to be? Is that how you're kind? And you know that person is the same as you. We are all connected. So if you hate on them, you hate on yourself. And it just flips it. Now, that's taken me a long time to build that neural pathway. I've been doing this for a number of years. And that it's about a practice. And so when we talk about yogic practice or spiritual practices, because you do it every day and it doesn't make you righteous or holier than now or better than anyone else what it does is it stops you being human and doing all the human things that can make us so terrible to each other so that's a big part of my practice is anchoring that i'm a vegan which i choose to do because i do that around a consciousness around harming animals but again it's not i'm not a vegan and i think everyone else should be a vegan i'm a vegan because that is my spiritual practice and that's where i'm at in my karma in my life in this lifetime so I completely respect and I celebrate everyone else's choices and the, my, the best way I can be a compassionate, kind human is by being a compassionate, kind human, which means that wherever anywhere else is at, I, I accept that and I love them for that. So I go about my day and I try and infuse that in what I do, in my work practices, the values of my business sit within those Buddhist and yogic principles. And you know, then I get to the end of the day and I do another set of prayers and I do another set of mantras and I go to bed as that's the last thing that I do. So. When I was at a conference recently, I think I was reading, anyway, someone said, you know, in the Western world, we wake up thinking we didn't have enough sleep and we go to bed thinking I didn't do enough. Now, it really impacted on me and I really thought that that is the condition of the minds of many people. We're not enough, we didn't do enough and we're, we're living in lack, we're depleted all the time. So I felt very grateful that my day starts with with a prayer and it ends with a prayer and it ends with a gratitude of just being here and really believing and knowing how lucky I am to have this this life I've got. I love everything you just said. Yeah, so do I. I think I think we all need to yeah. start um, thinking like that. I think it's yeah. incredible. I was nodding so. my head the whole time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, yes. But it is a thing. Like, yeah. you know, we, we, 
we as humans are so cruel to each other. We are mm. so constantly sitting in the eye and the ego and we don't have to be, you know, every part of our day is better when we're kind to people. Every part mm. of our day is better when we put other people first and we think about other people and how they are and how they're feeling and, and do it as an act of compassion, not an act of I'm, I'm feeling better than you or I, I can tell you what to do. But just, you know, there's a beautiful organisation in Sydney called the Wayside Chapel that up until very recently is being run by a guy called the Reverend Graham Long. And he says, we don't fix people, we meet people. So when you come to me, I meet you and I see you as you are and that is perfect and that's enough. And I think that if we can be like that in the world, we never have a, a superiority or a righteousness or a step up or an I'm better than you. If we really accept that we're all united in suffering, no matter how good our lives look on the outside, that suffering is our baseline and stopping suffering is our project for this lifetime. And so if everything we do comes from there, you can't help but connect to others because you know no matter, even if they're like fully like smashing you in the face you're like that's coming out from a place of suffering so i'm going to be compassionate towards you yeah. and it, it flips and you don't you can't hate on trump and you can't hate on people that don't have your views because they're just like us they woke up and they wanted to be seen and heard and loved yeah that's amazing mm. found to be the most successful marketing method to um, get your book out there the good hustle what's worked what hasn't worked it's it's kind of hard to know because I've actually really consciously not been engaging with numbers because I don't want the good hustle to be about have I hit targets the good hustle is about getting a change agent into people's hands to transform their lives so but what I've been doing is like I have a very structured social and digital campaign I mean I really see that that's how the connection's going to be made. Someone's going to buy that book because it's either going to fall off the shelf into their hand. And I've had lots of stories of people in airports who've gone, I don't even know why, I just picked it up. And it was like, you wrote it for me. But then most of the other people are coming through that someone they know will read it and will say, you have to read this book. And there's and I'm, that's the sort of, that's where the Thousand Hearts experience came from. It's kind of like the people are resonating with it, they're resonating on to someone else. So that's kind of what I like. So the digital part for me is really just talking about what I'm doing and kind of, I guess, living my life in the public eye, trying to do those values that I talk about in The Good Hustle. And often also talking at things. I love talking to people and I love doing Q&A and really kind of unpicking what some of those key themes in the book are. So that tends to then have little spikes in sales and connectivity once I go and speak to people because then they buy the book and then they share it with their friends. So it's absolutely 100% digital 101. It's like it's shareable, people connect, and the way that digital works really well and social works well when they're connecting about something they feel passionate about and building those evangelists isn't, I guess, for me, I'm trying to make it very much not about sort of soul selling. I'm trying to make it very much about I just the more people that get this, the better. I don't intend, I had no intention of making money from this book. This book is truly about a message, and it's a messaging tool. So the more people that get that message and then implement it, the more people that are going to be kind and compassionate with businesses that are sustainable, win, yeah. winning. And I've got, you know, like I have a lot to say about the wellness and spiritual and hope peddling industry, which I am very uncomfortable in at times. And I see a lot of that memeing that's being done is really preying on lack. It's really preying on the things that we, we hate about ourselves and making us feel that we need to purchase stuff. And, you know, again, like this, I sit in a very uncomfortable position as someone with a product for sale in the market in this space saying this. But I often don't think we think about the language that we're using when we're on social media. And it's, it's so it's a thing for me. And 
a lot of my stuff is very much about saying, you know, don't buy this, look inside, look inside, look inside. I believe that we have the answers and sometimes we need someone to reflect them to us. But when I see lots of stuff about people, you know, who should be living their best lives and it makes me feel physically unwell because, you know, we are living our best lives. The best lives aren't in the future. We aren't purchasing our best lives later on if we do this 10-part course. Our best lives are now. So there's a lot of people who are insecure and worried and already feeling like they're in lack and I think quite often... The industry as a whole tends to push people into that inadvertently or advertently. So it's uh, it's tricky, and it is a multi-billion-dollar industry, and so mm. it's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of love and hope masquerading as shame and pain. So I, I worry about that, but um, but certainly it's all happening on social, and that's where the conversations are. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you had to pick one marketing trend, I think I already know the answer to this, <laughs> that you think is going to take off in the next twelve months. Um, what is it going to be? I think letter writing. It's going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's my big prediction. Australia Post. That's what you were going to say. Shares are going through. Um, so for me, it's it's voice. I think voice is really going to be massive. What that people are, and which is kind of nice. We're starting to connect with voice again, and we're, we're connecting. We do a lot of texting. We do a lot of head down. Voice actually is a really nice way of feeling a bit more intimate with each other. So I think definitely voice and the ARs and VRs, the way that we are going to be able to connect more quickly and more deeply. And I'm also seeing a continual sort of people saying really question the value of the the busyness of social and the lack of connection. What we know is that we're very connected, but we are very emotionally unconnected, and we are feeling more isolated and more anxious and depressed than we ever were. Like the statistics are in on that. So we have to machines have to help us; they can't hinder us. And so what we what I would like to see this is not so much a prediction as a wish, but I would like to see that we use the incredible technology we've got. To, to be more intuitive and more connected and more kind in the technology we have. And I think voice can certainly do that. But the the rise and the rise of that is going to keep on going. And I think we're going to start seeing the rise of more niche social networks. They've been talking about this since the advent of Facebook, that the gorilla would get to a point where people would turn away. And I think what we're starting to see is a deep distrust of what's happening with our, te- with our information and really the damage it's causing. So I think we'll see people do more niche social networks and be able to be communicating in more communities of interest and hopefully we'll see a lot more peer-to-peer policing of behaviour. But I think definitely in terms of tech, it's going the, to, the wagon of connectedness and voice will just roll on. And it's going to be ubiquitous. That's going to be built into all of our machines as the Internet of Things and big data is part of everything we do. Mm, definitely. Again, that's going to be a really big thing. So it's something that we need to, to sort of be alert but not alarmed and we need to be informed about because it's going to subtly be part of very, very you know low-level domestic appliances I mean, as we're seeing now. So... But it's going to be great and we'll, we'll know more about people than we have. And I don't like to be cynical about that. I like to think that, you know, it is in some ways having access to that data, we can use it for good. Um, all right, so thanks so much for joining us in the King Thing studio today, Polly. We really, really appreciate you taking time out of your day, providing us an insight into your life, personal and professional We've had a laugh, which has been amazing. We're super excited that you've given us the scoop on your brand new project. We can't wait to follow that. Um, we're just going to pull another quote out of your book. Um, so you quote Steve Jobs, and he says, the only way to do great work is to love what you do. So we've absolutely loved having you here today. So hopefully that means that we've done a great job. You guys do the Thank best you. jobs. Keep, keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>